Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. So we talk about prayer today. It's the third part of this mini-series, Let's Go, as we enter into this new year and talk about how we can build up and reach out. We've kind of covered those two categories, building up by building relationships with each other within the body of Christ. And then last week, outreach, as we take what we do here through our relationship building and our friendships and the family of God and the discipleship that we have here. And then last week, we take that out of these walls into our community, into our families, into our workplaces as we reach out with the gospel of Jesus according to his great commission given to us to go and to make disciples. And this week is the last session, but it is not the least of those, because those things that we want to do, building up and reaching out, must be built on this foundation of prayer. A prayer life and a prayer routine that is rooted in the greatness of God and our need of that great God. I made mention of Tom Rainer's book, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church, last week, and several churches that had closed their doors that Tom Rainer, then the director of Lifeway, had gone to interview uh, former members of to see what happened, what went wrong. And interestingly enough, one of the other things that was mentioned in that list, one of the whole chapters, is devoted to prayer. That these churches that were now closed, that had died, did not pray together. When he asked members, former members, did y'all pray together, other than the perfunctory sort of blessings and service prayers and things like that, there were no corporate times of prayer. There were no times in the service when requests were brought before the Lord other than an offering and a closing and what people call a benediction, which is often just treated as a closing prayer to the service. And so I want to ask you as a church body today, understanding the responsibility that I now place on us as your pastors and leaders... Can you remember the last experience with serious corporate prayer? Maybe you come from a denomination or a background with when spontaneous, loud corporate prayer was acceptable. Oh, to God that we would have such an experience in our church where people would just erupt into prayer. Maybe it was in a Sunday school class or a small group or a committee meeting when unexpectedly the Holy Spirit moved and it became a prayer meeting. Can you remember the last time you personally prayed over our church's prayer list? When the last time you took one from the lobby or came by the church to get one or just called to ask who you could pray for and wrote it down and prayed over those names? When the last time you prayed for your church? When's the last time you prayed for your pastors, your leadership, your deacons, your Sunday school teacher, your ministry? Rainer rightly points us to the early church and shows us that prayer was the lifeblood of the early church. And I go back to the verse I quoted last week, last week from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, 
that once the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to meet together, one of the things they devoted themselves to, other than the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, the, the fellowship together, they devoted themselves to prayer. Based in the apostles' teaching of the truth of the gospel, based as they built relationships together and reached out together, they were praying together, devoting themselves intentionally and willfully and faithfully to praying together. And so the question for us this morning is, what would happen if we devoted ourselves to prayer in this way? What would happen if we devoted ourselves to prayer in this way? What would that look like as a church body? What would we pray for? What would we expect? Many of you are old enough, maybe, to remember. I'm old, I'm old enough to remember the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights or the prayer meeting on Sunday nights. And we look around and we say, well, what happened? Well... In some cases, the prayer time became a gossip rag. You've been in these prayer meetings, haven't you? Where it's who knows the most information. It becomes an information contest between Miss So-and-so. I don't know why it was a miss. Mr. So-and-so and Miss So-and-so on who has the most recent up-to-date information. And sure enough, sometimes there's even a contradiction in the information because the focus has shifted from actually praying for the person who needs the prayer to who knows the most and who's closest to the situation. How about when prayer time becomes a complaining session? When instead of legitimately bringing needs and requests before the Lord and before your brothers and sisters in Christ, it becomes just a time for you to vent and unload. How often did prayer times become this? And prayer times lost their focus. And then soon prayer times were neglected. And then before we knew it, prayer times were abandoned altogether. I want us to understand that sometimes when we lose those prayer gatherings, we're losing more than just an annoyance with the complainers or the gossipers or whatever else it is that made us neglect it in the first place. This becomes more than a neglected, forgotten church program. Our lack of prayer reveals a lack of dependence on God. Our lack of prayer reveals a lack of confidence in God. And it's not that we're not dependent or we're not confident. We just don't find ourselves dependent or confident upon God. And churches have instead become dependent and confident within themselves. And so in many churches today, instead of prayer, there's all sorts of replacements that have been given. Instead of a dependence and a confidence in God and the preaching of his word and the power of his spirit, we find ourselves relying on any number of things. Many churches where gimmicks have replaced the gospel, where pragmatism has replaced preaching, where worldliness has replaced worship, and where programs have replaced prayer. And before you know it, the spirit of the age has replaced the spirit and the power of God. Oh, that we would devote ourselves again to prayer. Prayer together. Prayer in worship. Prayer in our preaching. Prayer for the needs of those in our church body. Prayer for our community and our world and our nation. Prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Prayer was the lifeblood of the early church. Is it the lifeblood of our church? Look at Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23, and let's just read this whole narrative, and I'll explain a little bit after what's going on. We're kind of jumping into the middle of it. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed with Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What was prayer to the early church? Number one, prayer was their first response. We may have heard it said, you might have said it, you might have said it, and trying to help someone with every good intention on the face of the earth, we say, when all else fails, pray. There's nothing wrong with that statement in and of itself. When all else fails, you probably do need to pray. And it's a familiar sentiment, how often we see it, but it's removed from what we see here in the scripture. Because they were not treating this vital, powerful tool of prayer as the last tool in the tool chest. They were not treating it as the thing to turn to only when everything else failed. This was not the last ditch effort or the final option. We fail to see the power of prayer the way they saw the power of prayer because it's where they turned first. I wonder how often we treat prayer like that as a church. That churches sometimes, maybe even in our body at one point, have come so far in a contentious issue or controversy or conflict or split before we ever thought to pray for God's peace and God's wisdom and God's guidance. How many times do we get through in a meeting with a committee or as deacons or as staff through a decision, through a complicated issue without first stopping to ask God for his guidance? I wonder if that's sadly a reflection of who and what God is to us as a church. Has he become merely, maybe to you or to us, a crutch, an afterthought? The Bible does not present prayer as an emergency response when all else fails. Because the Bible does not present God as an afterthought after everything else has failed. To get us into the middle of this story here where we started, you must understand that Peter and John were preaching in the temple after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They're preaching in the temple. They healed a lame man who was over 40 years old. Everyone saw it. Everyone was praising God and worshiping God. 
But when asked how they did these things, they said, well, it's by the name and the power of Jesus. And, of course, the religious leaders reacted, brought them before the council, and were about to arrest them, kill them, torture them, whatever they could do to them. Except the people were too wild up praising God that they couldn't do anything to them for risk of what the people would think. And so they released them. And so in this first sort of dust up with real persecution, Jesus told them it was coming. He promised them it would come. And here after Pentecost, shortly after Pentecost, here is this first brush with persecution in their midst. And I wonder how we would have responded versus how they responded. When released, did they react with panic? Did they react with anger, with hatred, with retaliation? Did they try to go to the governor and react with legal action? No, because in verse 23 it says, When they released, were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and elders had done to them, and said to them, And when they heard it, upon hearing it, they lifted up their voice and prayed together. These were not little, individual, quiet Baptist prayers. These were corporate, loud, spontaneous prayers. Two words tell us that. They lifted, means they elevated their voices. It was loud. It wasn't just conversational. And they lifted them, it says, together. Corporately, spontaneously, and simultaneously. In other words, back in Acts 2.42, when they devoted themselves to prayer, this was an overflow of that. Because when this first brush of persecution came, this first sign of tribulation came to them, what did they do? They responded in prayer loudly to God together. They turned their eyes to God first by turning their voices to prayer first. And why should they do this? Well, we sang about it this morning. Because God is great. They know that's the reason they lift their voices to God first. Look in verse 24. When they lifted their voices together to God, what is the first thing they said? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. How often we bring our requests and our petitions before the Lord or our complaints or whatever it is, and we just go straight there. Oh, God, please help with this. Please help with that. And God hears us, and he knows our hearts. Absolutely. When was the last time you prayed and began your prayer with that kind of worship? Telling God who he is, and not first asking from him, but first praising him and worshiping him for being the sovereign of the universe. Now, when we read that phrase, sovereign Lord, in English, it's just one Greek word. You're familiar with it in English, though, despot or despot. And we think of a dictator, don't we? Someone who's a despot is a dictator. And really, if we think about it, that is exactly what God is. Now, when we think in human terms of a dictator, we think of a sinful, fallen human being. We think of murder and jealousy and power and control. And that is true with every single human dictator. But when we're talking about the one who truly is in control of everything, who truly is without question and without doubt in complete, total control, there is the real power 
in all the universe. And that's where they begin in this address to God. And here's the question, where else would you begin in an address to God? Why bring our needs and our petitions and our requests to him if he doesn't have the power to do anything about it? If we're just pleading with him to try to change something, the question is, why bother? But he is the sovereign, all-powerful creator of the universe. And that's how they address him. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, verse 24. But it quickly shifts. And this is so important for us. Because they confess God not just to be the sovereign of creation in terms of the stuff we see around us. But in verse 25 and 26, 27, 28, we see that that sovereignty overflows into the affairs of men. Look at verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And then they relate that to their present circumstance. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. As they begin to pray, they call God the sovereign Lord of the universe over all creation, the land and the sea, and everything that is in the universe. Absolutely. But then they also move into the affairs of men and reveal God to be the all-sovereign power there too. And they begin to quote from Psalm 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, we see that. Why do the peoples rage? Why do the nations rage? Why are they gathered together against God and against his anointed? In other words, don't they know who they're talking to? Why do they gather together to, to, to fight against God? Remember this from a few weeks ago. What did God do in response to their plotting? He laughs at them in derision. Because who do they think they are to come at God this way? God is the sovereign of the universe. But then things things take a surprising turn. They've just dealt with this bout of persecution within their midst. As Peter and John were taken before the council. As they begin to see that maybe when Jesus said they're going to hate you just like they hated me. And they're going to persecute you just like they persecuted me. For the first time they begin to think maybe that's that's the way it's going to be. And here they are facing this persecution and facing this tribulation. And in all of their memories, they remember what they did to Jesus. There were gathered together Herod and Pilate and all the Gentiles and all the Jews against you and against your anointed. They witnessed this for themselves. The crucifixion of Jesus, the persecution of now Peter and John. And we see the roll call, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, all conspiring against God. All conspiring against Christ and putting him to death. Little knowing that according to verse 28, in all their conspiring, in all their plotting, and all their power grabbing, without even planning with each other and conspiring with each other, all of these parties involved, verse 28, were only doing what God and his sovereignty 
had absolutely predestined to take place. Now we take a pause there sometimes. And we say, wait a minute, Pastor, do you, do you mean that God is in control of everything? Do you mean that God predestines everything that comes to place, comes, comes to be? Do you mean that God not only knows, but has foreordained from eternity past everything that happens? And then we begin to be a little uncomfortable and think, well, if God is in control of everything that is going to happen, and God has already predestined what's going to take place, and that's his plan, and he's sovereign, and he's in control, if that's true, Pastor, then why do we pray? What does prayer do if God's already determined what's going to happen? What does prayer do if God is already in absolute control of every single thing? My question to you this morning is we got the question wrong. It is not if God is in control of everything, why pray? It is why pray if God is not in control of everything? If he is not the sovereign master of the universe, if he is not the one who has all power to control everything, Why pray? Who are you praying to? What are you praying for? To who else do you want to turn this morning than the absolute monarch of the universe? Who even in this rebellion against him and against Jesus, the most vicious, wicked, vile, evil crime that was ever perpetrated against a human being, the largest sin ever perpetrated against God, if even in that rebellion... Those people are only obeying God's sovereign, predestined will. That's the kind of God you want to pray to. Who even in the conspiring and the plotting of sinful, wicked men is working out his plan. That's who I want to turn to. How else do we turn to him except in faith, receiving his plan... And how else do we express that faith in him except through prayer? But I want to ask you this morning, how often have you looked anywhere and everywhere else first? As an individual? As a church? As a family? How often have you exhausted every other resource except this one that connects you to the absolute sovereign of the universe? And when we do that, what are we missing? We're missing God's very power in our midst. Power that must undergird everything else we do. So that before we can begin to even start thinking about building relationships with each other or reaching out into our community with the gospel, we must start where the early church started as the Holy Spirit filled them, even in this time of persecution, to pray For God to work. They turned first to prayer because they were turning first to God. And if we need to say God first in all things, it goes without saying that we're saying prayer first 
in all things. The early church's lifeblood was prayer, number two, because they were helpless without it. Everyone loves a good doctrinal controversy, don't we? Yeah. And there was one in the fourth century, very early on in the life of the church, between, you might know him by St. Augustine or Augustine, and another British monk named Pelagius. And the nature of their argument was about man's ability to obey God. Augustine said that in order for man to obey God, God must give him the grace and the ability to do it. That God can command whatever he wants from us, and he's right to expect it. But because of our sin, we are unable to obey it unless he gives us the grace to do so. Pelagius took an exception with that. He said, no, that's crazy. If God commands us to do something, Pelagius said, we must be able in and of ourselves to do it. It would be wrong of God to command us to do something that we couldn't do in and of ourselves. So which is it? Can God command whatever he wants? I think most of us would say yes. Second question, though, do we have the power to obey it in and of ourselves? The church at that time answered with the resounding no, and I think rightly so. God can command whatever he wills, but the second truth goes with that. We can't obey unless he gives us the grace to do so. In verses 29 through 30 here, we see that the early church agreed. After praising the Lord for his sovereignty in creation, his sovereignty in the affairs of men, confessing God's plan working out even in the crucifixion of Jesus, look at what they say starting in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Did you catch that? What did Jesus already command them to do? Go, teach, make disciples. What did Jesus already imply by that? You need to be bold, and you need to go tell people about me. They already had the command. They already had the commission. They were already commanded to be bold and to make disciples. Yet here they are asking God for the power and the boldness to do it. In fact, they go a step further. God grant that we might continue to speak with boldness. They know the command of God. But they recognize their own inability. They recognize the utter dependence on God, and so they know that they must ask him for power. question for you, First Baptist Church Dumas, is do we know the command of God? Hopefully over the last two weeks, we've unfolded that. Build up, reach out, go, make disciples, teach, build each other up in the body of Christ. We know the command. Do you recognize your inability? I wonder if in the last two weeks you've come to terms with that. 
Maybe you looked on the sheet and you see the challenges daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and you look at some of that, share your faith, invite people to church, invite people into your home. Maybe you looked at that and you thought, I'm out of my depths here. I'm out of my league with all this stuff. I don't know where to start telling people about Jesus. I don't know where to start inviting people into my home and having conversations with other people and building relationships. Of course you don't know where to start. Of course I don't know where to start. Because we need to recognize in all of it our inability. So that we can also recognize our utter dependence upon God. Ultimately, so that we know that we must ask him for power. Have you done that these past two weeks? Have you done that ever in your Christian walk? Oh God, I I confess I don't know where to start sharing my faith with someone. I don't know the words. I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to strike up a conversation. Would you... Open doors. Would you give me power? Would you give me boldness? Would you help me know what to say? That leads us to the third point and the best news of all of it. When we put prayer first and we confess that we're helpless without it and without God, God will work. Verse 31 says, when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Theologians call this an aftershock of Pentecost because here they are gathered in one place, much like in the upper room. Here they are needing boldness from God and power from God and here God is answering them in much the same way as he fills them with this Holy Spirit and their prayers are answered and they're given boldness to go and declare the good news. After they prayed, after they acknowledged their inability, after they acknowledged God's power and asked him for it, he answered by sending his spirit and power and boldness. I want to promise you this morning one thing, that God will always answer prayer. He'll either answer with a yes to what you ask, or he may answer with a no to what you ask. And he may answer with a, I've got another plan for you when you ask. But he will always answer. But I can tell you this morning, without a shadow of a doubt, there are prayers that God will always say yes to. One of those prayers is, make me more like Jesus. Make me more holy. He's predestined you to that, Romans 8, 28 through 30. It's going to happen. You're going to be more like Jesus, and you can pray that he'll do it. Help me cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. You pray to God for patience or joy or kindness or love or gentleness or or any of the fruit of the Spirit. Help me grow in those things, God. God's not going to say no. I don't want you to grow in gentleness. I don't want you to grow in self-control. And you might not like what God does to you to grow you in your self-control and your patience and your prayer. But he'll answer that prayer. Another one that he'll always answer yes to is, God, give me more boldness and give me more opportunities to tell people about Jesus. I am confident today 
that if we will ask God for that, he will hear us and he will answer us and he will say yes for his glory. How far is this kind of prayer removed from the gossip rag? How far is that kind of prayer removed from a complaining session? Or the pragmatism and the junk that governs much of the modern church? How often, though, do we pray in this way? Now, you might have heard me this morning say that you cannot bring your requests and your wants and your petitions to God. The opposite is true. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, that we can bring our petitions and our requests to God. We can bring it all to God. We can bring it all to each other. That's something we might need to learn a little more about. You know, it's interesting as pastors and church staff, when, when someone knows about something going on with someone, but nobody else knew. Or a surgery or an upcoming appointment or a serious issue in your family. And because of pride or shame or whatever it is, we don't want to share that with anybody. Not even our church body or our Sunday school class or our small group. How far removed from the Bible is that kind of thinking? Let go of the pride and the shame and all the junk. And let people into your mess so that we can pray for you and be there for you. It's so important for our life together. As a body of Christ, we can bring our requests to God. But the question is are our requests always in the same vein? Is all we ever say to God a request, a petition, a physical problem? When have you ever started your prayer with worship and praise? Praising God for who he is, the sovereign master, the holy one, the beautiful one. When have you ever confessed your inability to God and begged for his power? When have you ever seen God work like this here or in your life or in the life of your family? I want to encourage you, you got the handout again today in your bulletin, that as you look at those daily and weekly, monthly, quarterly reminders, that on that monthly section, there will be a monthly prayer time that will set a date and a time for each month that I would encourage you to be at. And absolutely, you can pray by yourself wherever you are. Not everybody's going to be able to make it, but we need to make our corporate prayer time a priority for our church. Pray with your family through those care connection sheets on the very things we've been discussing about building relationships and reaching out. Find yourself in conversation with God through the day. And the joys and the sorrows and the sadness and the anger, whatever it is, pray in this vein. Oh God, you are good. I confess my inability to think through or to handle this situation right now. Would you help me to do it according to your will? Let prayer be our first response as we confess our helplessness to God and ask to see him work in our lives and in the lives of our church. We're going to enter into a time of prayer at this moment. You guys that are leading us in song, y'all can go ahead and come up. 
But before we stand and sing and end our time with our song, I wanted to invite us into a corporate time of prayer together. And I wanted to base it on these three points that we've talked about today. One, a prayer of worship and praise for who God is. Two, a prayer of our confession of our inability and our need for God. And three, a request for God to show us his power and his glory as he answers that prayer and moves in our lives and moves in our church. So I've invited three people to lead us in corporate prayer together. I think the order is Darcy and then Philip and then Brother David Waddell. So between each of them, as they pray for these different points, between each of them, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads where you are and to pray for those things. If you know a need of someone around you, the Williams family is back there, those who are here. If you know the need of someone around you, even as we pray for all the other stuff and we have these folks leading us in prayer, go to someone and pray with them. Lay your hands on them and pray for their need, sickness, family, lost loved ones, whatever it is. If you know that need is around you, do that even as we pray together today. So I invite you now to bow your heads, close your eyes as we come into this time of prayer. And after a few moments, Darcy will lead us in a prayer of worship. And then I'll lead us into that next category of prayer on our inability and need for God. Lord, we come to you humbly today, recognizing your great power. From Genesis to Revelation, Lord, we see your great sovereignty. We look at your creation, the sun, the moon, and the countless stars, and we see that there is no part of your creation that is out of your control. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you that we can rest in your sovereignty. Lord, may we worship you and praise you in times of joy, in times of sorrow, knowing that you work all things out for your glory. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'll give you a few moments to pray and confess those areas of inability. Maybe it's to confess sin. But as the early church confessed their helplessness and their need for God, let us confess our helplessness and our need for Him. Maybe in these areas we've been talking about, outreach, relationships, whatever it is, something in your family, in your life. We give you a few moments to pray about that. And then Philip Rhodes is going to lead us in a corporate prayer confession, our inability to God. Almighty Father, Lord, we know that you have created all things and that all things are subject to you, including us. And Father, everything that you have created was good until mankind distorted it with sin. And Father, even in our best efforts, we come up sinful. But in your sovereignty, Lord, you made a way in spite of that. Father, we rely on your way and we acknowledge our inability to do what is right. 
Father, through Jesus, you made a way. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, Father. We rely on you and your goodness and most of all, your grace so that we can be with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. In our last moment of prayer together today, we're going to go to that last section as they saw God work in power as he moved and he filled them with the Holy Spirit in boldness and they continued to preach the gospel with boldness. In this last time of prayer, I want you to seek God for that. As we've confessed his sovereignty and our inability, now we ask him for that which he will say yes to, for boldness, for a compassionate heart, to help us build relationships within this body and to help us reach out the walls of this church with the gospel, to see him move and to see his spirit work in our community and our church. So I'm going to give you just a few moments of silent prayer for that, and then David Waddell will lead us in a corporate prayer asking God for those things. for this congregation and for our church. And Lord, we, we thank you for what you're going to do within us and for our community. And Lord, now we ask that you would enter in and move on this congregation within our people and within our hearts a passion for our community and for outreach and for moving beyond these walls uh, in order to impact your kingdom. I want to pray for revival within our hearts and to move back to closer to you. And Lord, we ask for power uh, and boldness as we go out and speak to people about your gospel. this prayer if we're faithful to you. We pray you'd give us humility and humbleness and the ability to go out and reach people for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now would you stand? If you're near someone or you're near a stranger, maybe you don't know the person, it's a stranger, just reach out and grab somebody's hand. Lays hands on somebody as we pray together. I'm going to lead us in a corporate prayer before we sing. You pray over somebody next to you as we pray together. God, we come today thanking you for the great gift of prayer. And God, we confess that we've so often neglected it and put it on the back burner in favor of other things, things we think will fix our problems, our own imaginations, our own devices, programs, activities, the things we try to fill our life with to do what prayer was designed to do, and that's connect us to our Creator. And so, God, we confess that we have neglected prayer as individuals, as families, as a body of Christ, and we ask your forgiveness for that. And we ask that as we pledge ourselves today to devote ourselves to prayer, 
you would hear us from heaven and you would heal us and you would show us your power as you save souls, as you grow us to be more like Jesus, as we see people come into the church, as we see relationships built, as we see the gospel go outside the church into the world. God, we want to see your Holy Spirit move. We want to see your glory poured out through the preaching of your word, the salvation of sinners, the building up of the body of Christ. God, we know you will not say no to that. So do it, God. We yield ourselves to you as a church and as individuals. We say, oh, Holy Spirit, breath of God, breathe new life into us as a church. Breathe new life into us as individuals that we might live according to your will and perform your commission, your mission in our world and to the ends of the earth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.